Episode of What's New in Adaptive Physical Education. This is your guest host, Brad Wiener, ready to serve up a super exciting discussion on adaptive physical educators' perspectives of educational research. This was an article published in Research Quarterly for Exercise and Sport, published in March 2020. I have here the authors of that article, Dr. Scott McMara, Dr. Andrew Colombo Dugavito. Mr. Christopher Ahrens, and myself. Well, let's kick things off with the authors telling us a little bit about themselves. Dr. McNamara. Oh, well, uh, yeah, thank you for, for taking the lead on this one. And, I, you know, I think most listeners, you know, probably know me a little bit. And I'm an assistant professor at the University of Northern Iowa. Uh, and I teach a lot of physical education and adaptive physical education classes. Um, and I just had a baby, so she's eight weeks old today. So that's that's most of my life right now. And uh, even though the pandemic's going out, I don't think I, we would probably be going out too much anyways at the moment. So that's a little bit about me. It's kind of cool to be on the other end, huh? It is, it <laughs> is. All right, well, Dr. Colombo Dugavido, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, um, so long time, second time uh, on the pod. Uh, I'm an uh, assistant professor of sport pedagogy and motor behavior at the University of North Texas. Um, I'm entering now what is my fourth year down here, um, and I'm just excited to be here and talk with y'all. Well, we're excited to have you here, and Mr. Ahrens. Well, thanks. Uh, first time on the podcast, really excited. Um, I am an adaptive phys ed teacher in the San Diego Unified School District. Uh, this is my 11th year of teaching. Um, I came, I started as soon as I finished my graduate work at SUNY Brockport. Um, I'm a former Paralympic soccer player, something I'm very proud of. Um, and I think uh, our paths with the, my fellow three panelists have all crossed at some point or another somewhere, whether it be a conference or digitally on Twitter or something. So um, I'm really excited to be a part of the conversation. Yeah, it was definitely a, a fun thing for us to get together and do. And a little bit about myself, Brad Wiener, and I've been on a few podcasts with Scott out of uh, Montgomery County, Maryland, as an adaptive physical educator. Well, let's get started with the why. Why was there a need for this study? I'll start with that. I feel like, Scott, I reached out to you and Justin Hagel, maybe. If I'm remembering our timeline correctly, you might be able to fill in some holes for me. Um, I, I know the why for me was it was in an effort to, to help my department in terms of being on top of best practices, but I felt like I was struggling to find where the latest research was coming from. Um, and, I, and I knew that it, so I reached out to uh, Scott and I met at NAPEC two years ago, I think it was, so I, I made the contact after that. And I was just curious as to from him, from a researcher standpoint, where was he putting most of his research? Most of the stuff I had found was either in journals or sat behind paywalls online. And so I just, I was actually just trying to gain a better perspective of where could I get my hands on um, research that could help shape my teaching. Um, and then the conversation snowballed from there. Um, and it turned into this project that um, I did very minimal heavy lifting on and three of you certainly did most of the work, but uh, I was still happy to, uh, to see what came of it. I mean, my, my, uh, like my memory as well as like that you started that conversation, you put something out on Twitter um, and I do remember Justin Hagel being part of it initially too. And like, we had that conversation, Andy, I think you're on there right away too. And it was like a, a conversation that started on Twitter, which is to me was really cool. And, you know, I think, I, and I, I know I've had other conversations in past about something like that. And it's nice to hear like teachers also kind of echoing it, but I, I've had it with other people in higher ed about just like issues with like, we do this research you know and it's all in a vacuum and it's not often not you know utilized or used by teachers and, and but you know we don't always know why it's not used is it because it's not very relevant to them which I think is you know a, a real issue that we have as well as like you said the paywalls a lot of these journals cost a lot of money to access uh, so I think we, we kind of like we're just talking about the issues of that 
uh, and how we should look at, you know, a how are people what are how are they using research and also how are they accessing research research yeah i was just say um i was excited i think you're right scott it got started on twitter or just some conversation i don't know who looped me in first um but i was excited to to get that invite um because over the last couple of years i've been really getting interested in participatory type of research and stakeholder-based research, where it's including folks who are going to be impacted most by the research, right, or most by whatever project or the outcomes that are, that are, uh, that we're looking at. And so when we brought this in, especially now knowing that it was Chris who kind of led that charge, I think it's even more, I guess, stronger or more potentially impactful as a project, um, because that's the whole purpose, right? That's the whole reason of I think why we did this project and what we're all sort of looking at is how do we connect researchers and practitioners to make the most impactful outcomes for students or clients or whoever the work might be about. Uh, and really those outcomes are, are, are only going to be valuable and only going to be useful if the stakeholder is a part of that conversation, right? If it's only researchers while some of us do have classroom experience, some of us have spent time in and out of the schools, we um, train future teachers, we're still a step or several steps removed from that process, and we don't necessarily what's all going, know what's going on all the time in the classroom. So unless the people who are, who are actually there, who are, who are the boots on the ground, for a, lack of a better term, are a part of the project, we're not going to know necessarily what's needed right in that moment. Okay. Well, yeah, those are all great points. And I think that if, uh, you know, Chris had this question in his mind, he's not the only one in the country, that there are a lot of other practitioners that had a similar question in their mind. So it's great that uh, you kind of started the conversation and got the group together. Uh, looking at the dynamic of this group, we have both professionals in higher ed and practitioners. Was there a benefit for this collaboration that supported this research? I'd say absolutely, um, particularly when it came to doing interpretation of the data. You know, we had quite a bit at the end of the project, which I'm sure we'll talk about soon. But when we started looking at some of the even the open-ended responses or just, you know, how some of the um, percentages broke down, it was really powerful to have both you, Brad, and Chris as a part of the conversations to, to put some of that information in context because if it was just Scott or I, we may have had different interpretations of what people were saying. But when you looked at it, you might have, you had a slightly different view to say, well, that maybe it's this way, because this is how, you know, I see something similar in the classroom, or I've, I've experienced something similar, and this is how I view it. So I think when we, when it came to the interpretation piece, it just added a, a richness um, to what we were doing. Yeah, and I, I, you know, Andy's done a lot with this participatory action research, which is what we did in this this study, which is cool, and we've actually looked at a lot of like APE related research, and often we're not including the stakeholders in our research, and that a lot of times that's not teachers, but it's children and people with disabilities that we're not including in our research. So I, I think it's really cool that we we're able to do that, uh, and we want to advocate for like us listening to you since it's supposed to be like applicable to people like you, and I think that's just like a huge thing, and it's something that we often don't do. Um, you know, and I, I think your points of view really were helpful, even if sometimes it was confirming, uh, like what we were doing as well, like that was also helpful, like just to be like, is this relevant to you? Um, and I think that was super helpful to have that. Um, I know for me, um, sometimes I felt like maybe the fourth wheel because I, I haven't touched research in this capacity since my graduate work. Um, and so I, I, it is not, it's kind of like a four, I'd compare it to a foreign language a little bit. And obviously, um, Scott and Andy specifically, and even Brad, I get the sense that you have a really pretty decent grasp of it, but it, you know, you guys are speaking the same language a little bit. So what I, but what I found most helpful about that is that I think as a everyday practitioner in the field, uh, we do, I do a lot of just sort of anecdotal based on empirical sort of 
right, always kind of doing research, always just kind of trying new things. And it's not within the constructs of what, how this was sort of like a official air quotes, right? Um, so I think it was really good to kind of knock the rust off, if that makes sense. And to, uh, um, and so I think it was probably beneficial both ways, just as for you, even if it was just confirming for me, it was kind of invigorating to be around the process again and kind of got the wheels turning. Where else could I do this within my teaching profession and so on? Absolutely. Now, another like issue that we talked about, like with like wanting to like make it, um, why did we do this? Or like the issues maybe with like accessing research is like what you just said, Chris, of like, we talk in a foreign language. Um, you know, my wife sometimes has read a paper or two of mine. And when she reads like our statistics part of it, like the method, she's like, like who would ever read this? That's, you know, I mean, and, and really like, you know, when we start saying X equals this and you know, all that, I mean, the, the app, you know, it, it doesn't make, yeah, it is its own language. And that's a, 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 a issue with, with what we're doing as well is that we are talking in, in a foreign language that's usually very specific to our field and area of research. And, and once again, we're just, you know, doing research into a vacuum versus it meaning anything, um, which I think is what we want. I will admit that oftentimes, or sometimes when I'm reading an article, I may skip that part and read the discussion <laughs> and read the results, right? And, because that is the part that I kind of understand. But what was nice and kind of feeding off of Chris is that, uh, this experience really through your guidance, both you and Andrew's guidance really gave me a new perspective of what goes on behind the research and maybe a little bit more of how to read those sections that in the past I've made, I've skipped over. So uh, I do think there was a lot of give and take throughout the process. I think that really speaks to the power of, of these types of methods, right, of participatory methods is that um, researchers may be on one end using very jargon because that's what journals suggest to do. That's sort of what's required of us. And then on the other end, practitioners are using you know, language in their own terms, right? They're using everyday stuff that gets passed around. And so there's a huge gap. And by including researchers and practitioners, stakeholders in the same project, um, you, know, you get to see what goes on behind you know, behind the veil, right? And you get to see the processes of the research and kind of learn that language. And as researchers, we also get to translate what would be a very jargon-based, very um, specific type of writing into something that's more accessible for a broader audience, right? So it's sounding like uh, maybe there should be more collaboration between higher ed and practitioners moving forward for research in our field. Would you agree? hundred percent. Yeah. Um, I don't, I think I did a presentation with, uh, Dr. Josie Blagrave at the, um, NICP, the consortium meeting, I believe, was it two, two years ago or three years ago or so about stakeholder based research about participatory research designs. Um, and, Unfortunately, we didn't get as much time as we'd wanted, but I think it really opened some people's views to what the potential is for this connection. Because as a group, we always talk about how we can't get research to translate to the classroom, how um, you know practitioners may not be using the most up-to-date research. And then on the other side, practitioners go, well, none of this research is applicable to me, right? None of, none of what I'm reading, I, can, I really see how it's useful in the classroom. And so unless we create these partnerships, unless we create these collaborations in which, you know, stakeholders are not just recipients or participants, they're active, engaged members of the research process, they're equal, co-equal members of the research team, until we do that, we're not going to see this translation from research in the clinic or lab setting into a classroom. I, I just want to, like, also hear, like, you know, Brad, you had a really great question about like, you know, is this collaboration important? Should we see more of it? I want to hear like Chris and yours kind of like perspective of like, do you see this as useful? Like, was this like more of a chore that you didn't see? Or like, is it useful for us to collaborate with you in like, you know, for, from your perspective? Because it was very helpful for us. Well, I'm going to say that at times where you say it was very helpful to you, 
I didn't realize I was really being that helpful. <laughs> but I was definitely getting a lot out of the, the process that you were leading us through. Uh, and so for me, it was very applicable. It was very um, beneficial for me. Uh, what about you, Chris? What are you thinking? Well, boy, I mean, I, I think it absolutely was. And to, to the larger sort of umbrella that we're talking to, you know, is it, is it beneficial for the, for the field? Um, I think absolutely, because I do think even if I am flipping through a journal or I find something online, um, I've struggled to find stuff that I think really applies to the, to the work I'm doing. And I think of other fields. I think of if you were to talk to somebody that teaches reading at the elementary level, I'm fairly confident that they could say to you, well, research shows this is beneficial for kids because of this reason, et cetera, et cetera. Or, hey, I just read something really interesting. Uh, a good example is my wife at the high school level, she, she teaches math and her principal maybe to a fault, was obsessed that the daily learning goals had to be on the board because there's research connecting that to overall student success, right? But when I think about our field, at least in my day-to-day, -day, I'm not having many conversations like that. And maybe they're not either, but, they, but those are just a few sort of examples I could point to. But, in, but when I think of our field, I don't think of a lot of things that are, you know, students with autism in an inclusive setting do X, right? Or um, you know, inclusion's this whole push. Maybe we need research around, is it really beneficial for the kids? We don't know that yet, right? I mean, so you see where I'm going with this. I think it's, it's massively beneficial. And I think it could be, I think if you guys knew you were putting out research that was impacting the field, that would make it probably more rewarding for you and you'd really want to keep going. And then also for us knowing that what we're doing is best practices, you're just, we'd be improving the field overall. So I think I gave you a really long-winded answer to yes. That was a great answer. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I, I think like even your points about inclusion, you know, Justin Hagel does a ton of that. And I've had a lot of conversations with him. And, you know, I think that's like, like we don't always have evidence-based practices in our field, even though, and maybe there's some for specific disabilities or and even those are still, it, it's, you know, we, it, I, yeah, like the, how useful it is and how much research we actually have. And we always have this conversation and I've had it with Andy too. In our field, we have a like, and even this is like, it's like um, a surface level kind of drop in the research versus 30 articles on this one thing. You know, the only thing I can think of is maybe some of our assessment tools, like TGMD has a ton of articles on it, but even that, you know, it's, um, and Andy, I, I'm, yeah, what are your thoughts? Oh, I could say a lot and probably stuff that would get me in trouble. Um, but I think I think one of the hard parts and uh, with doing participatory research is it takes more time, right? It's on the researcher side of things. One of the one of the downsides is you're working with people who may or may not have experience with the research process. So you're helping folks learn that process, walking through that process, which is beneficial, right? Ultimately, um, but it takes extra time. And if you're a junior faculty member who needs publications, taking those extra months to go through a project, it's, it can be hard to justify, if, you know. And on this, the stakeholder side, right, none of, I, I mean, I, I could be wrong, but Brad, Chris, neither of you really get credit for having your name on a publication, right, in, in, the, in the long run of things, right? Yes, it does look good for you. Obviously, it makes... Um, you know, you look good in, in terms for your administration, the fact that you, you're doing this, but when it comes down to promotions and those kinds of things, it, it really doesn't matter for the stakeholder side of it, right? So these are all great things, but there are, there are incentives that work against using participatory research. And sometimes for many researchers and many stakeholders, those are hard to overcome, right? And I think when we, when we look at fields like speech and language, right? A lot of those use very specific type of methods, right? And I think in the classroom, particularly in physical education, we do have quite a bit of research. It's quite scattered. And I think it goes through certain phases, right? So we have a lot of research from the 80s, 90s about inclusion, about integration, about least restrictive environment, that all kind of came back up in the early 2000s with the reauthorization, but then it goes away. And now it seems to be starting to come back again 
with certain um, people leading charges and having these discussions again. And if we have stakeholders in the room who feel this is an important topic, that also can be a driving factor. But again, it's about incentive, right? You have to have buy-in. You have to have a desire to be there, to be in the room, to be willing to take the time. And it's hard for some people to, to do that. Right? And I think that kind of is shown in the paper. You know, we did have a high rate of people who found research to be favorable, but we also had a high number of people that had advanced degrees that didn't see the value of research. Right? So there was kind of this dichotomy of, yeah, we do it, it's important, but the findings aren't valuable. So how do you, what do we do from here that actually starts to make research be valuable to teachers or other stakeholders? Well, sure, it must be disconcerting to those of you doing the research to have a conversation with people or multiple people and just if they almost seem dismissive. Well, I didn't get very much value from it. And, and in the back of your head, I'm sure you're like, do you have any idea how many hours I put into this thing? Um, so to the point, I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's worth a conversation of like, hey, Brad, what are you seeing in your field? Like, is this something we could do? And to Andy's point, I'm sure you can't do that every time. You guys, you're held to a standard of the amount of, uh, you know, how much content you're adding to the field, um, you know, peer reviewed, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, maybe once every few years, it's worth digging in with people that are in the field to try to do something impactful. I, I don't know that we came to a conclusion from this paper about what it's going to look like after this. Um, but uh, if, if more conversations like this happen around the country, I think that's a good thing. So we've kind of been uh, bouncing around the article, uh, but our audience may be wondering about the study a little bit. So I'm going to backtrack a little bit and ask, what was the question that we were seeking to find out? What were, what were we looking for? Um, so like we had three research questions and they were how, how frequently do adapted physical educators conduct or use research and also like for what purposes. Our second one was where do and, and if uh, adapted physical educators access research. And then our last one was their general perceptions towards research, educational research. Um, so those were our driving kind of research questions. And I, yeah, I think to rephrase that, I think the, the point was to really just see how adapted physical educators used research, how they engaged with it, their views of it, um, just because we, we didn't know that, right? We just don't have that information. Um, and so in, in, if we're going to be able to do something about it, if we're going to be able to find a way to get research and translate it into the classroom, we have to know firsthand what those folks actually know about it. So I think that was sort of really the driving point of what we were trying to look for. And for myself, when we were starting this, one of the questions that I was asking myself is what is considered to be research mm -hmm. in terms of somebody that doesn't conduct a lot of research what is it? Is it me going on the internet and looking or around or is it me? So maybe we can talk about a little bit. What is research a little bit? Well, I will also say like that is a limitation to our study. We didn't really tell them what research is and we let their, you know, um, let them decide that. It's kind of a limitation. Um, but I, I, I think that's a really good question. Uh, you know, I, we, we, in higher ed, we have that question sometimes when we're like, is, should I publish this? Or is this something that is even worth publishing? Um, you know, I, I don't know. To me, research, I mean, what we are probably looking at and what we value in higher ed is peer-reviewed research. So that means it's gone through this quote-unquote gold standard is what they always say about it, uh, of other people in the field that are quote unquote experts look at it and give their feedback and say if it's good or not. Um, that's kind of like what we're usually referring to when we talk about research is this peer reviewed thing. And what I will also say about our paper, and this is uh, one of the most unique experiences I've had with the peer review um, process, because I thought that so oftentimes in higher ed, we complain about reviewers and we feel like they don't get it and all these other things. But um, this paper, they actually, uh, 
asked us to critique the higher ed publishing like you know game even more critically than we were and they offered a lot of suggestions that really improved our paper i think um and so this was one of the most positive experiences i've ever had on the end of like going through that peer review uh thing but that's usually i think what we're talking about um but i don't always know if that is that if that's what is research is always peer reviewed yeah, it's I think that's a loaded question because in today's climate my facebook feed is filled with plenty of people that do not do research i would argue um but all jokes aside um i think I, I, my answer is it could almost does it vary person to person and i just say that because and I, I think it depends where people are at in their life personally if you're balancing a kid and you're coaching a sport um like are you going to take the time to seek out journals i would i would venture to say that that's probably a little more difficult for someone however um the way that twitter's taken off within our field i think people might view that as research absolutely especially these conversations with the hashtags that you know that um people moderate and then you know there's a there's a lot of great firsthand experiences there um, so I think for some people, they probably do, you know, qualify that as research. And if they went and looked something up and brought it back and put it in their, put it in their teaching and it worked and they stuck with it, you know, you, you could make the claim that. So, so I think it's a little bit um, person to person. I think, you know, higher ed, there's a gold standard. I think maybe as it trickles down to us in the field, our, our perceptions of research might be a little different than those at the collegiate level. Right. As we enter distance learning, I would say that I got a lot of great content from Facebook to support my ability to uh, engage in distance learning, something that was very new to me. I think in the most traditional sense, um, research follows a research method, right? It's, it's um, very, very, um, it's systematic, it roots, you know, it starts the process based in some kind of evidence and roots whatever findings come from that process in evidence. And that, is, that is the traditional sense of what research is. Um, I think it's, I think we have to be careful in, in use, using or advocating too much for stuff that is just on a blog or on Facebook or on Twitter, while it while it can work, right? I I don't I don't deny that, and I don't deny that lived experiences are very powerful. A lot of my research focuses and amplifies lived experience, but I think you know if you see something that works on somebody else's classroom or with a particular child. That doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work for you, right? That is that is going back to that trial and error kind of teaching style, which I guess could be considered some research, right? You're testing something out, evaluating it, using that evidence to, to evaluate the power of it. But if we really want to say we're using evidence-based practices, it should be rooted in that, I guess, more higher ed kind of narrow vision of what what research is, mostly because we know the the outcomes, whatever whatever our intention is with with doing that intervention or that program, is going to be much more likely to happen, right? If because it is rooted through that scientific process, because while it, no research is completely bias free, we've we've controlled for as many biases as we can, right? And so we can. We can never prove anything. We can never say definitively one way or the other, but we can say with a certain amount of certainty that this might be the case. But I don't mean that to dissuade teachers from sharing information in ways that are accessible and ways that can be transferred from one to the other because that's what researchers do. That's what practitioners do day in and day out. It's just social media makes that, that circle right, that, that conversation a little bit bigger and a little bit broader. Um, and I agree it, with yeah. you in the sense that uh, there is a lot of value within the content of social media, um, but I all, and I agree that there could be some dangers if we broaden the word research to the point where 
some people believe they're doing research, but there is no evidence behind that research. And so I agree that there needs to be that systematic uh, process to determine that it is evidence-based. And it's it's hard too because um, researchers rightly have been critiqued for so long as being gatekeepers of knowledge, right? And gatekeepers of who is actually included in that process and who gets to make these decisions. And I think the power of social media is, is that it democratizes that ability to share information. It's just we have to be careful, right, with the type of information that gets shared and and how we're saying something is evidence-based. Um, I think that's a critique just as much on researchers, on folks in higher ed, as it would be on practitioners in the field. I think in this paper, um, we've we've got pretty good evidence to suggest that just publishing in the standard outlets is not always the best thing to do. It's not going to reach ultimately the people who need it. And so, yes, researchers have to publish in these, right? That's how most of us get tenure. But that doesn't say we can't also take that information and write it into a five, 800 word blog, into a five, 800 word piece um, that goes to an op-ed that gets information, you know, much more closer to the people who are going to use it and, it and in a way that is digestible. Yeah. So what were some of the methodologies behind conducting this research? Uh, well, so what we, we used, and this is like kind of what ended up guiding a lot of our actual research questions, is we grabbed this survey from the National Center for Research and Policy and Practice, and they uh, created a survey for school leaders across the nation, looking at their perceptions, access of research, just like what we looked at. And they did it with um, science teachers too. And so what we did is basically we took this survey and we, we, um, we modified it for our own purposes a little bit. Uh, but that, and, and we added some questions within there too. Uh, but by and large, that's what kind of guided our, and so we did a, a survey research is really what we did with that and, and added a little bit of open-ended questions and did some frequency counts in there. So that's really what our methodology was, was grabbing an already created uh, survey and then us going through it, the four of us. And I think we sent it out to some experts in the field to look over as well. Uh, and then we sent it out and we sent it out to, I think, about 60 different APE, PE organizations asking them to send it out. And so we got a pretty good response rate on that as well. We had 124 people, I believe, that ended up making the, the end cut. Uh, as adaptive physical educators, which is, is not a bad number for our, our somewhat small field. Um, so that, that was our kind of our methodologies. Um, I don't know if anyone wants to add to that. And I'm just to say it's to kind of um, de-academicize that, put it in maybe a little different way. Um, it's really descriptive. So what we were looking at was just to really capture and, and describe people's perceptions, people's understandings. Um, we weren't trying to change anything. We weren't trying to do any type of intervention or, or even compare different people. It was really just to describe what was going on, um, you know, across the U.S. when, we, when we're talking about research and adapted physical educators. Great. And, and you kind of touched about this a little bit with talking about the results, but what were some of the major results or the ahas or if there were any surprises that came from this? I'd say for me, um, we asked a question about like where people get research, where they find research. Uh, and some of the major outlets that you'd expect bubbled to the top, right? So things like academic journals, 65% uh, of the people that we surveyed said that's where they got information from. Um, I think books were 54%. So a fair number of people are still getting them from those outlets. But on the flip side of that, there's a fair number of people who aren't. And, and what was surprising to me was that social media was at 56%. So people were getting just about as much information from social media as they were academic journals. And then when we looked a little bit further down, 94% got information from consulting with colleagues. And it only 32% 
uh, consulted with folks like myself and Scott, college professors. So there is a disconnect, a major disconnect there that 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 kind of is, is an aha for me of saying, yeah, academic journals are okay. We, we should still publish there. We're, we're not denying that fact. But we also need to be putting them in places where more people can see them, like social media, because then they're going to be much more likely to have a conversation with their colleague about a particular research study um, because nobody's contacting me about my findings. Very rarely do, do people reach out, even though my email is widely available. It's on every paper I publish. Um, so for me, that was really powerful, and it really made a rationale for academics to push to publish and actually um, you know, make sure that it is incentivized to publish in places that are accessible for people who aren't in higher ed. Because I think too often we share stuff amongst ourselves and we pat ourselves on the back and we say, good job, great study, awesome, wonderful, and then we move on to the next thing. And we just expect there to be this, you know, transference from our knowledge, our circles into the practitioner's hands and into their classrooms. So I think we need to do a better job at that. And that's what really, for me, stood out from this. Um, on that point, he talked a little bit about access. One of the other things that we asked was like if they had access and if they used um, a university library system, which is usually the best way to actually get to these uh, articles because they get through the paywall a lot of times. Uh, and I was surprised as how many people said they did. It was like 56%. And I thought that I was surprised. I thought that number was better than I expected that they had access to these, but still you're then talking about 44% of, of, of practitioners not having access to, uh, you know, I don't know, like the higher end journals a lot of times, which is, and Andy's point too of like we need to be incentivized to publish our, our, our research out in, in either in plain language and also in areas that people can have it. But the system that we are in incentivizes exactly the opposite. It incentivizes us to publish in the ones that have the least access to or are the most expensive to access. Uh, and the ones that are oftentimes more um, you know, accessible or readily used are sometimes like deemed as like nothing uh, in our world, um, like literally nothing, uh, like they're not, they don't matter. Uh, so that, and that, so that's um, just to kind of um, go off of his point. Um, I'll make another point too, and Andy alluded this before, and we looked at like their perceptions towards research. And uh, overall it was positive, I, I think. Um, and, but, one of the things that we did see, as Andy, as Andy mentioned, which I think is super interesting, is that the uh, higher level of education they had, so you know, the ones with masters and doctorates, were more likely to be pessimistic about uh, the how how useful research was. The money. Yes. And, waste and of money. Waste of money is what they said. Yeah, and and. To me, and we saw that in, in, a, in a few areas, and like to me, that's really, really powerful. And you know, all we can do so that's, we need to do more research on this. We need to do interviews, and we need to, you know, um, eventually, hopefully, do interventions and look at how can we get people to use research more. But like, you know, with that, like that's really interesting to me. And it almost, I, to me, I started thinking, is that because they have a lot of information, they've done research, and sometimes they're like, does this really mean anything to me? I don't know. But or maybe they're just you know been around longer and they're more uh, hardened to the system of education in general. I don't know. That's a good question. I'm curious, um, Scott and Andy, when you guys present research at conferences, do you find that the people um, that typically come are people that are in higher ed, or are they uh, more similar to Brad and myself, or is it fifty-fifty? Um, I'm just curious, what kind of people does that usually draw out? Yeah, that depends on the conference, really. Um, most, yes, yeah, so I've not been to NAPEC, but um, in my experience with SHAPE is most of the people who come to the research talks are, are the higher ed folks that are there. Um, usually the research talks are in a room that's really far away from most everything else, and it's potentially during times where there may be, you know, other 
much more engaging things, right? That much somebody's doing a game demo, somebody's doing something else like you know a, a certification or, or a different new hot hip game that's available or activity that's available, and the research kind of gets gets tucked over into the little side. Um, but with that said, there there are I have noticed several practitioners who seem to go to all of those reasons. You know, I see the same faces of practitioners in in those research meetings. So I don't know if it's a, a type of person. And, and I do notice it more in the APE world that practitioners go to the research pieces compared to the gen ed world um, where I don't necessarily see that same type of engagement. And maybe that has to do with the fact that our field does work with a population that is a little bit more difficult. You know, we, we come into challenges on a, on a daily, regular basis that you want to find an answer for. You want to find out what's the best method that's going to be able to help this child. Um, and so maybe you turn to research. Maybe you turn to other practitioners who are having that problem. And then I think also we have to look at the fact that APE, most like most people are going to have uh, a master's degree. And most of our adapted programs are at research-focused or sort of research-based institutions. So you kind of get a, a taste of it while you're there and you get that experience going through. And so maybe that has a, a, a piece of it, right, that, um, that you're exposed to it during the process of your education as a practitioner and, and get that value piece of it, right, that we see in, in our paper here, we saw that there's value from the practitioners, but there's a waste of it and there's still a disconnect, right? So it's how do we how do we change that aspect of it? Because we have people who are engaged. Now we just need to make sure they're engaged in appropriate ways or even included in research so that outcomes are going to be, um, you know, not a waste of money. Uh, real quick to, uh, to uh, like answer Chris's question. So you mentioned shape. And so my experience with going to the research pieces of shape, shape's like a very, we have researchers, we have a lot of PE teachers, um, and most people are dressed in their PE, you know, ready to move, ready to go and, and do activities um, at these different workshops. Well, my experience to go into the research pieces is like it's in a room all like kind of maybe even a di different floor than everything else is. And when you walk in, it's a lot smaller and everyone is in a suit. Almost everybody is has at least a tie on, uh, you know, it, it's and and it almost is like, you know, communicating to you. You're not welcomed, <laughs> you know, like and I, like you, it almost looks a little odd if like there's three or four people that are not in. Um, that type of professional. But if you go to a lot of the other workshops uh, at SHAPE, it doesn't look like that. Now, I have been to uh, the National APE Conference in California, and I did not see that as much there. I saw, I did go to a few research presentations, and I, it, I couldn't tell you the difference in the, in the audience of who was a teacher and who was a researcher. Uh, and and I, I've talked a lot with people at, at that conference and association and, and they might be doing something really special there because you know and Chris you're there um, it seems like they do have a really nice balance or collaboration there I'd have to say um, I've had a little bit more success in talking about research in a in talking about the research in a practicable practical way Right. So framing the presentation, not just as the standard 15 minute research presentation where I blast through all of this stuff, talk about the statistics and, you know, maybe two minutes at the end for the outcomes, which then they're back to back to back. And you talk about four different studies in a row. And that that can be information overload. I know it is for me uh, sometimes. So I think uh, practitioners or sorry, researchers need to to recognize that and make that shift right we have to we have to make the first step to say here's our research here's how we see it being applicable and then that hopefully draws in the practitioner but i guess i'd have to ask you brad and chris when you're at conferences when you're at those things you know how do you pick what sessions to go to and if you see something as research what would either encourage you or prevent you from going into that session? 
Well, before I answer that question, I do want to share that, you know, Dr. Hagel is doing a lot of research in inclusion versus integration. And so he and I have gotten together and decided that we are going to present his research together in a practical way. And so we're going to take his research and I'm going to support him by creating it into a practical environment. So we're going to be doing this at Bayford where there are a lot of practitioners there, but in a practical sense. And so we'll see how that goes. Um, but maybe it's that kind of strengthens the, the concept of getting the higher ed and the practitioner together so that when it is presented, it can be presented in more of a practical sense. And then something may be able to, um, so the, the audience leaves feeling like they can now use this in their classroom. But to answer your question, when I am at a conference, if I'm looking for things that apply to me directly in my setting. So if it's, whether it's research or it's action-based, I, I want it to apply to me and my students. And so I think that is what a lot of practitioners are looking for. And they may, when they read the abstract, they may not feel that connection to the research-based sessions, and they feel more of that connection to um, something that may be more action-based. And you may find that uh, a practitioner goes to a session that is research that's on inclusion because they can relate to it. Is that in the abstract, is that because, you know, and I'm, I'm getting your one singular nugget here, but is that because abstracts for action-based have action verbs and are written in a way that says, hey, this is what's happening, here's what you're getting, here's what we're doing, whereas the researcher, the, the research-based, is much more like, we're going to tell you, and we're going to do this, and this may be what you get. I would agree. I mean, sometimes the researcher's like, here's the purpose, here's the method, discussion, and the results. And, and I feel that, you know, when uh, Dr. Hagel and I were thinking about the session that we're going to put together, he put out an abstract, and I looked at it, and I tweaked it a little bit, maybe with more action words. I have to go back and read it. And he said, wow, you're really good at writing these abstracts. And I don't think I'm really good at it. I think my mindset just may be a little bit different than what he had, because he did have a very strong abstract, but us putting our minds together, I think we came out with a good abstract. I think Brad's absolutely correct. If it's something that, you know, is, is of interest, just, just as like anything, if it's of interest, you're going to want to go. I think when, when it's a demonstration, I think the general idea is that you can go and if you take one thing away that you see and you can immediately take it back and put it as a part of your toolbox, that's enticing, right? You feel like you can take things. I'm actually going to use Brad as an example. I've, I've attended a session of Brad's and um, I, it was for, in San Diego, we call it our medically and physically challenged population. Um, and, you know, these are probably our students that need the most support. Um, and so I took things from that and immediately implemented it, stuff I just hadn't thought of before. Um, and so I, I think that might be part of it. I also know my personal experience with research is sometimes it feels like it's hyper-focused um, in, in certain areas and, and they just don't apply to me. So I'm going to make one of my former professors cringe, but um, Dr. Lieberman is all in the visual impairment field. And I that's just a field whether I, I don't cover the schools in my district that have a high percentage of that population. So um, typically that's research that hasn't resonated with me uh, because I haven't been able to put it into practice. Um, so I think if the research feels like it's hyper-focused in an area that um, doesn't impact me, that that kind of goes into my decision, Andy, of whether or not um, I'll, I'll attend and check it out. Um, so I, so like I said, I think it's twofold. It's, it's that. And then I just think with the demonstrations, you will, you leave hopeful that you'll take something immediately that you know you can put into your teaching. So maybe that's um, an incentive for researchers to write somehow in an abstract, here are, here are takeaways, here are, here are what you can expect to learn from this presentation. And I was really happy that we added that piece to this paper 
we added a section at the end that says, hey, you know, you read through the all 10, 11 pages to get here, but here's the, the lead that we buried is that this is what you get to take away from the article, right? And so maybe as researchers, again, in, in the research process and trying to include stakeholders and trying to include practitioners, uh, flipping that and continuing that process, Brad, that you're talking about with Dr. Hagel, um, you're, you're now a part of the research process, right? It's, it's the research doesn't end when the study's over, right? It, it continues on into the, into the dissemination. And so you're a part of that dissemination process and right. You're bringing strengths that we as researchers don't have necessarily, right? Even though many of us were in classrooms where we teach in classrooms, right? We teach methods on how to teach, but we're still removed from that, right? We're not necessarily in it every single day. And so combining those strengths makes that connection better because now I'm certain that folks are going to come to your presentation and they're going to get the research base that, that Justin is bringing and you're making that practical, practical to the settings that they're in and you're, you're translating that research in, in real time, which is really cool. And I, I think too, just Brad being there for a research presentation is probably really important because I think that some, sometimes um, practitioners might, you know, as soon as a researcher is up there talking about their research or whatever, um, I don't know, it might kind of be a turnoff. And, and I think, you know, Brad's already a really well-respected person in Maryland and they're probably a little bit more, there's going to be a little bit more buy-in maybe um, because it's somebody like them that's, that's using it and such. Uh, one other thing too, so we talked a little bit about like trying to get it out there. One thing that we cited, but it's by Kathleen Armour and she, it's for like coaching, I think, but we, we applied it to ours and she has this thing that's called like how to translate research. And she suggested that in all of our papers and all of our textbooks and such, we have a pedagogical cases piece where it's, we have, we take our research and we give it to a practitioner and we ask them to write like a paragraph on, um, you know, like a, how you would apply this. It could be like a narrative, like here's a third grader, this is what I would do. And we see those sometimes in certain articles and such, but like that, they want us to do that more. And even, and rather than us write that, ask a, ask a practitioner to write it uh, and just a piece of it and, and say, how do we do that? And that, you know, because we need to get this out to practitioners, but even in like in our world of research too, we need to be talking about this in our research articles as well. Uh, so it's like twofold. Like we need to discuss how we're not accessing them and we need to discuss it uh, within our research article. I think that's a really cool uh, piece. And um, it's one I noticed is starting to happen in my, my more sub-discipline of working with autistic populations of making sure that they are a part of the research process, they're a part of disseminating findings because they're gonna be much more practical, right? They're gonna be much more applicable and in line with the actual needs of that population. And there's a really cool example um, of a book that just recently came out that in each chapter, uh, the two researchers, the, the authors of the book did their piece on covering the different theories and, and different stuff that's going on about autism. But then at the end of each chapter, an autistic person uh, or an autistic researcher would write a synopsis of that um, chapter or write a, a different view of that chapter and how it might be applicable to their daily life. They added an extra piece to it. And I think that could be really powerful in the physical education or adapted settings where we're now taking this research and we're doing, we're sort of, I guess we're priming that translation to happen, right? You're, you're sort of already starting it down that road um, because somebody, some practitioner already has done the first step of translating what this research can actually do. Again, I think we run into the problem of it taking extra time and it being an extra that thing that people have to do, right? And that it's not incentivized for any of us to, to do either thing, either as a, as a higher education researcher or as a uh, K-12 practitioner. Excellent. So I'm gonna, I, we have one more question. Uh, so where do we go from here 
with this research moving forward? Uh, I would say the researchy part of it is that I want to do interviews and such with people to get like a better understanding of like why they feel this way. Uh, surveys, like like Andy said at the beginning, are very descriptive. So we kind of get like a, this is what they think kind of, uh, you know, a, a general lay of the uh, land, but we don't really know why uh, and, and interviews will let us kind of probe that stuff. That's the research part of it that I would like to do. And then eventually you, I would hope that we would look for some type of interventions to try to bridge that gap a little bit. And, you know, even if that's some of the things that we just laid out um, of trying to do that more often. Uh, 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 but that's to me, and, and Andy just laid out a lot of the things that we need to do is we need to get into better to, we need to collaborate more with, with practitioners on both ends. Like you need to help our research end of it to make it more sound and, and authentic, as well as we need to communicate better to you all so that it's actually like usable. And then, you know, uh, we have to publish in better places. We have to, you know, there's something called open access journals that we have not talked about at all. So those are oftentimes free, um, they're distributed freely, but sometimes again, in research worlds, now it's starting to change a little bit, but oftentimes they're seen as like, almost like people look down on you for publishing in some of those. Um, I th it's changing though, but like 10 years ago, I would say that would be like the rule, uh, but it's starting to change. Um, the European Journal of Adaptive Physical Activity is a nice journal that's coming out that's open access. I think there's also a cost to that too, right? Because for some open access journals, the researcher has to pay publication costs, um, which most of us don't have unless you have a grant or your university subsidizes it in some way. Um, not that we get paid for any of our publications to begin with, um, but I think what what going forward with this type of research, I'd be wary to say that interventions are what we should be doing, particularly for me, I think the way this research, this particular type of research evolves is not just presenting, you know, practitioners and using research, but actually presenting the process of here is how you include practitioners into the research process. Or as a practitioner, here is how you can become engaged in the research process. Because that, I guess, in and of itself, you could call an intervention, right? But it's, fr I guess, framed a little bit differently and that we're not intentionally going in and, and telling practitioners, hey, you got to do this, but we're giving people the tools that they need in order to be able to engage in this process further. And I think it's going to take a, a time. It's going to take a lot of effort in order to build a critical enough mass of people that value this type of work and value this type of process for it to, to become incentivized and actually become just sort of a, a daily part of the process because we all are balancing a million things, especially now. Um, but when you add this extra thing in there, while it can be a value, it's still extra, right? We still have to have the ability and the privilege to be able to have the bandwidth and the extra ounce of mental energy to do this thing. Um, so I think, Going forward, Scott, I think you're right, getting context, looking at what things can be important, what avenues for researchers to connect to practitioners, but also presenting the process piece of how each side can do their part to make this a little bit more of an easy process to get into. And I would say if we were going to have this as a session at Shape America, that I would want to leave the session with possibly a list of reliable sources that I can go to knowing that they are uh, reliable research versus maybe going to other places where the content is good, but the reliability may not be there, right? So from a practitioner's point of view, um, I think the takeaway or moving forward is what is the reliable sources that I can go to? And, and we can kind of jive on that a little bit. And that's a really hard question in some ways. And it depends on, you know, just because a journal's really good does not mean like top tier journals have to retract things. Uh, oftentimes it's the reviewers and that's, and there's multiple editors all involved. So it's 
little hard to say, but there's, you know, there is definitely, even uh, where we published in my, my eyes, I was really, really happy about where we got in because our research quarterly in our field is, um, is for exercise and sports seen as a really nice journal. And, and I would, and even our experiences of going through it were really positive. Um, and there are a lot, and it's, it's actually probably easier to say the ones that aren't as great, but then I don't want to do that on our podcast, <laughs> but, um, no, but just yeah. looking at the future and if we were to sure. do a session or want to give a takeaway to a practitioner, yeah, that may be a good, uh, takeaway for them. And I like journal of teaching and physical education is probably to me the most the probably as far as where empirical research is going, it's probably the best that or the European Physical Education Review are probably the best journals for PE teachers to be using if they want to get their hands on real quality research that's app, at like, um, like, you know, relevant to them. Well, excellent. We've had a great conversation today. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, before we end it, I'm just curious if anybody has any last thoughts or comments related to the topic. I, mean, I was going to add one last thing. Sorry. And it's just like, I mean, not to, you know, and thank you, Brad, for like leading this conversation. But it's this is somewhat what I'm trying to do with the podcast. Like I'm trying to create some way for, you know, and I have academics on here. I have practitioners and it's loosely kind of the idea of this is to try to bridge some of that gaps. So also being on podcasts, creating your own podcast is, it could be another way. And, and I was going to say that um, the uh, health and uh, physical education podcast, or re, sorry, playing with research and health and physical education podcast is a really good podcast where they really do this. Like they almost do exactly what we're doing now, um, where I do sometimes more broader concepts. Uh, but you know, this is kind of what I'm trying to do with this podcast. So would you, could you say that for our listeners who are listening right now, is that, are they conducting research by listening to your podcast? Oh, so another thing that I, I, I almost <laughs> mentioned was textbooks. So oftentimes most practitioners are most familiar with textbooks, which are considered a secondary form of research. So those are, you know, somewhat like literature reviews and, and even sometimes I'm sure Andy and I have scrolled through some um, textbooks and been like, that's not right. Um, and sometimes the oversight on, on them is not the same as, as empirical articles, but they're usually, they're, they're considered secondary, like where it's people have read the articles and they write stuff based on the articles. So I would say the podcast is probably a lot more like a secondary source. I, th I think it is. It's more accessible though, right? Book chapters are more accessible. Um, literature reviews are more accessible because it does that synthesizing for you already. Podcasts are great because, again, we're trying to synthesize the information and, and put it in a way that's more accessible. Um, but outside of the example of a podcast, books sometimes take a year or more <laughs> to actually come out and print. So, And sometimes people when they've written that chapter, actually wrote it maybe the year or two based on, you know, so you might have th information that's three, four years past <laughs> when that book comes out. And it may, depending on whatever topic you're talking about, already be sort of passe. It's already, uh, we've moved on from that piece, right? We, we've looked at it in a different light. We've started using language differently. We've started using different inclusive practices. We started using different types of strategies in the classroom. Um, and surprisingly enough, in our, in our uh, review, or our study, the books weren't really that high. They were kind of right in the middle, about 50% of people or so use books. Maybe that's an expense thing. Maybe it's just a, a fact that people have to read a whole ton more with book chapters. They tend to be longer. Um, but I think if if we if we want to be serious about making sure the the best practices as researchers uh, get into the classroom, then we have to do more things like this. We have to make sure that um, conversations are being had between practitioners and researchers, and that's going to look a whole lot different moving forward. Now, I don't know when the next time any of us are going to be able to get together at a national conference. You know, so we're maybe we may be having to do things like 
get together and record it and put it out as a podcast. It might be engaging in, um, you know, social Zoom meetings. It might be having Twitter chats. It might be, you know, having Facebook Live groups where researchers get together and they ask or answer questions that people pose. Uh, and we have a dialogue that way. You know, I think, I think as we move forward, we have to look at these alternative ways for research to make it into the hands of practitioners. Um, because the way we've been doing it, just putting it in a book, putting it in a thing, and then you know, putting it in a repository somewhere doesn't work, right? It, it just doesn't. <laughs> well, if this is considered research or not, we thank our listeners for attending to us today. Uh, also, Dr. McNamara, thank you for allowing me to host. It's been a lot of fun. I appreciate the deep conversation that we've had today with uh, Dr. Andrew Colombo Dugavito, Mr. Christopher uh, Ahrens, and Dr. McNamara. Thank you so much. This is Brad Wiener. All right. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs> that was awesome. Thanks, Brad. That was great. Yeah, that was fun.